Well, guys, my name's Nick. I am the lead pastor here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. We are in Luke's gospel this morning. Uh, we're going to keep keep going um, through uh, God's word. We're in, in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to be reading. This might be uh, the most sizable chunk of scripture I've tackled uh, <laughs> in all my, my tenure here. So uh, get ready. Luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 11. Let me read it. We'll pray and, and we'll get in. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields... His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them, or yeah, Jesus answering, answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were all filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are here to meet with you this morning. You know, to some degree, the angst in my own soul. Just the desire to be done with a show, God. That if I'm somehow in the way of what you want to do in this congregation, get me out of the way. That it's not about a polished sermon, it's not about smiling faces and good appearances. It's about meeting with the true and living God. And that's what I desperately want for us, God. I desperately want a fresh move of our Father in this place. Maybe for some realizing, and they never even knew you. They've been playing the game for way too long. And conviction settles in. They are sinners in need of a Savior. And they see you. 
and maybe for others of us, for just just walking in kind of the, the daily ritual, rhythm, mundane. Yeah, we're Christians, but where's the life and the power and the rest and the joy? God, we pray this morning that you would come and revive us. We pray that you would exalt your Son as through him you pour out your Spirit and renew your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Begin just by asking a question. Um, Is anyone in this room tired this morning? (laughs) Is anyone in this room uh, exactly (laughs) exhausted? No, I already know you're tired. Is anyone in this room exhausted with me here this morning? I'm I'm, I'm there regularly. Uh, Father of a five-year-old, three-year-old newborn. Solo, to some degree, pastor, only staff, really full-time at this church. I'm tired a lot. I'm exhausted a lot. I fear that my eyes tell the story too clearly. But there can be another layer to our our tiredness, to our exhaustion. Because it can be physical, right? It can be because of the strenuous nature of our work, the things we have to do, or perhaps some of you guys are going through insomnia or other things, keeping you up. You're not getting the sleep you need. Physically, you're exhausted. But there can be another layer to this, right? Where there's this kind of spiritual exhaustion. There's There's this tiredness of soul. Something that takes place inside of me. Something that's going on in here. Like the crushing burdens of the heart, if you will. The the guilt and the shame that kind of wage war on the children of God. Or does the burdens of our own legalisms and trying to keep up with the rituals and rules that we think Christianity is and it's killing us. We can't keep it going. Or maybe the tangling nature of our relationships and the wife and the, the husband or the, the kid and, the, and the, the mother, whatever. And you're just, you're, you're struggling inside with this. You might get your eight hours of sleep, but there's still an exhaustion that kind of has you by the ankles. It's somewhere inside. You know, if that's where you're at with me this morning, then... I tell you, we need to hear this. Jesus has come to give us rest. And and what's more, he has the authority to deliver it. He's not just hoping to give us rest. Oh, he's going to do it. He's able to do it. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. If I were to identify for us a uh, the thesis, if you will, the main point of the sermon, I just lift it right off of verse 5 there. I just quoted. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Lord, He has all authority. Sovereignty and power and majesty. Of the Sabbath, he uses it to bless. 
He uses it to give rest and refreshment to his people, both body and soul. So to give you kind of the the outline for how this thesis will, will play out, first, this claim that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath is made, essentially, in verses 1 through 5. And then in verses 6 through 11, this claim is manifested. First, I'm going to say it, then I'm going to show it. That's why I thought, you know what, 11 verses is a lot for me. <laughs> but they go so well together, let's give, that a, let's, give it a, let's give it a shot. So there's your thesis, there's your outline. Now, let's go. Verses 1 through 5, the claim made. The claim made. Now, Luke begins in verse 1 with the uh, important contextual detail that's basically setting up everything else that I'm saying here and sets up the whole scene. It, it, it starts there in verse 1 like this, on the Sabbath, which says that everything that's about to go down in verses 1 through 5 takes place on the Sabbath. And then when we go down to verse 6, we see he starts essentially with the exact same thing, even though it's a different uh, Sabbath day. He still wants to make sure we see that this is happening on another Sabbath. You see that there in verse 6? So clearly Luke is wanting us to see something here about the Sabbath and its relationship to Jesus Christ. Does the Sabbath have to do with Jesus? That's Luke's agenda, therefore. I think it's God's agenda, therefore. It's our agenda. But before we can really go any further into this, uh, we got to make sure we even understand what the Sabbath is. We got to understand what 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 the Sabbath even is. Some of you might even be not, uh, wondering what, why is he talking about rest and sleep and being tired and then Sabbath. I don't even know what the Sabbath is. So to to help us here, I'm going to try to quickly answer three questions to serve as kind of a backdrop, and then we'll. We'll back our way into the text. First, what is the Sabbath? What is it? Second, why did God establish the Sabbath? That's going to play huge in our text. Third, where, where did Israel's understanding and practice of the Sabbath go wrong? All that's laying behind this on the Sabbath, on another Sabbath that Luke brings out. For us. So first, what is the Sabbath? I'm going to fly through this one. Just a simple. I'm just going to quote from um, the dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels here. But first, just quickly, etymology. Sabbath. Sabbath. It's just a word translated from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means rest. Now, there's your connection to my introduction. Sabbath means in the Hebrew. Rest. Technically speaking, and here I quote Westerholm, the term designates the seventh day of the Jewish week, a day marked by the cessation of work and by religious and ceremonial observances. So in other words, rest and worship, ceasing from work and, 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 and giving ourselves more fully, consecrating ourselves more fully to worship God. Seventh day of the week. Last day 
of the week. Sabbath rest. Second question, why did God establish the Sabbath? Why did God establish the Sabbath in Israel? Why does he even command it? I mean, it's depending on how you run down the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's the fourth or so uh, commandment on that list. Why is he commanding the Sabbath? Why does he institute, establish the Sabbath in Israel? I kind of did probably too much study on this because I personally felt, I feel a little confused about how the Sabbath relates to today and what we're supposed to make of it. So I wanted to do a little bit extra work uh, on that this week. Uh, we can't get into all the stuff I did, but I can give you real quickly three key words here that I think identify why God established the Sabbath in Israel. First, reflection. Second, remembrance. Third, refreshment. Reflection, remembrance, refreshment. So first, he established it for the purpose of reflection. We see that God commands Israel to keep the Sabbath because it reflects his own activity in creation. That God himself, we are told in, in Genesis 2-3 and other places, he created the heavens and the earth in six days and then on the seventh he rested. He ceased from his labors. He kicked back his feet with heaven as his throne and the earth as his footstool. The king entered in to his royal rest. And from, from all, all, all the looks of it in terms of the account in Genesis, it looks like that day never ends. Every other day in creation, the sun came up, the sun came down. The first day, sun went up, sun came down. Second day, seventh day, the day of rest doesn't end. Royal rest, God as king. But then we as his creatures, created in his image, are called to reflect that sort of thing here on the earth. So he says, six days you're going to work, seventh you're going to rest. This pattern you see in the divine is what I want in the human. I want you to enter into that rest with me. There's a fellowship with God in his royal rest. And we are reflecting him in the way that we participate in this Sabbath. That's reason number one why he established it. Second. Remembrance. We see that, that the Sabbath was established in Israel as a memory aid. Okay? As a memory aid to help them remember God as their creator and as their redeemer. That God both made them and he saved them. So when God goes to command Israel, hey, keep the Sabbath. He roots it in, in, in those two realities. So I want you to remember, essentially on the Sabbath, who I am and what I have done for you. That's why when we get to Exodus 28 through 11, he commands them to keep the Sabbath. And the rationale given is as follows. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Not just reflection here that I'm bringing out, but remembrance. In other words, every seventh day as Israel kind of stopped, they would remember God as their creator because that's what he did. 
is pointing them back to the one who made them, but then also remembering him as their redeemer later. Moses is going to give this same command to Israel as they stand on the edge of the promised land. And this time, the rationale given for keeping the Sabbath is that they would remember God as their Redeemer. Look at this. This is Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord, your God, brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord, your God, commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Keeping the Sabbath day relates to our redemption, the exodus from Israel. We're free from slavery. He says, you've got to keep the Sabbath to remember that so when Israel would close up shop and rest on that seventh day it would be an opportunity for them to remember who their God is that he's made me he's redeemed me he's got me I can stop I can rest and this is my father's world he's got me as I was thinking about this, I was, I was thinking about my kids, you know, I mean, I'm with my kids a lot. And it's almost like we get to be kids again, if you will. God's wanting to help us remember what it's like to be a kid in his household. Because let me tell you something, my girls don't wake up worried about whether food will be on the breakfast table for them or not. That's mine to worry about. That's daddy's job. Their job is to worry about, you know, what toys they're going to play with, what bugs they're going to find, you know, what books they're going to read or movies they're going to watch. That's the kind of stuff they can worry about. But daddy, he's got the other stuff. And there are times I look at their life and I go, man, that, I was so naive when I was a kid and all the things that my parents were carrying. I wish I could just go back to that, you know, like reading Calvin and Hobbes and you know, summer break is great. But, When God tells Israel, remember the Sabbath, he's essentially saying that. It's essentially a call. It's a call to to remember who he is, that he's in control, that because he created, redeemed, is caring for them, they can stop. You, brothers and sisters, can stop and let him care for you and enjoy the day. Reflection, remembrance. Why did he establish it? One more reason, and it's perhaps the best of all, refreshment. Refreshment. Third, we see that the Sabbath was given to bring refreshment to God's people. And really, this just shows God's heart, to all of creation. To all creatures. I mean, he, he, listen to this. Exodus 23, 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Why, God? That your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. I mean, he's concerned about everything in his creation here. 
Not just, hey, we want to make sure you get what you want, but when you rest, you give the the, the servants under you and your kids and your land and your animals and all the visitors in Israel, you give them rest so that they can be refreshed. I want to refresh you. In the Hebrew, I, I thought this was beautiful, so I bring it out for you. Refreshed here, nefash means to breathe freely. He wants God, in, in, in having his people uh, keep the Sabbath, he wants them to breathe freely. And here's the first thing I thought about. Maybe you guys have a different image. But for me, this is, this is where I breathe freely. I've never done this. But you pack your car, get your stuff, your tent, or whatever. You, you drive out of the city. You drive up into the mountains. You open your door when you get there. And what do you do? You breathe freely. You done that? Why does it smell so different? There's no smog. This is beautiful. Well, if I'm reading this correctly, God established the Sabbath in Israel to that end. (laughs) So that it would feel like I do when I get to the mountains. Breathe freely. Refresh yourself in the goodness of your God. It's amazing. We get all worked up about God's commands. He commands us to rest, you guys. What kind of a God is that? Who doesn't love that kind of a God? Unless your God is work. In all of this, I suppose if I had to give one simple answer to the question, why did God establish the Sabbath in Israel? We we could simply say he established it for their good. Because he loves them to bless them for their good. He wants them to look like him and enter into fellowship with him. He wants them to remember who he is and trust him and, and enjoy that peace. And he wants them to breathe freely for their good. That's why the Sabbath is here. So we answered the question, what is it? We answered the question, why did God establish it? Last question, and this will start to back us into our text. Where, where did Israel's understanding and practice of the Sabbath go wrong? So that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he has conflict after conflict with these guys concerning the Sabbath. What went wrong? If it was so good and so beautiful, what happened? Why does Jesus kind of have to reclaim it? Clearly, the the, the Sabbath, as established by God, is a beautiful thing. But it becomes, in in Second Temple Judaism, so after the First Temple was destroyed, exiled, they build the Temple again, Second Temple Judaism. In Second Temple Judaism, it became a sort of monstrosity under influence of the Pharisees. The Sabbath. It was this monstrosity of rules and regulations, all these things appended to the Sabbath in such a way that its original beauty was almost indiscernible. Almost kind of like, you know, I was in Philly and and, and sometimes there'd be these buildings that they'd be trying supposedly to refurbish, 
<laughs> he's older, you know, for America, it's old. If you've ever been to Europe, it's not old at all. But, but here, you know, oh, 200 years, wow, look at that, or whatever. And, and it's got all the scaffolding on it. You can't even see the thing anymore, you know? Like where I know it's beautiful under there, but they never get done with it. And they're always tinkering with it, and it's got all this scaffolding. You can't see it. Well, that's kind of what is happening here. Concerning the Sabbath, there's now all these laws and regulations that the, that the Pharisees have added to it in an attempt to kind of protect it, but it's disfigured the whole thing, and you can't even discern the beauty of the Sabbath anymore. Now, we are always so prone, I think, to demonize the Pharisees, but I wonder if you've ever sympathized with them. Perhaps we haven't sympathized with them because we don't quite understand the story behind their their kind of rise to to fame, if you will. (laughs) This is interesting. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. We need certainly to learn from the Pharisees' mistakes, uh, but we can certainly sympathize with with what's driving them here. So let let me show you this. Uh, the Pharisees actually have legitimate reasons for their hyper-caution uh, concerning Sabbath breaking. They have very legitimate reasons. Perhaps it even started with the right heart, you guys. Because if you know your Old Testament at all, you know that one of the main reasons God gives for taking that, 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 that the, the people that were first in the land uh, into exile, one of the main reasons God gives is you weren't keeping the Sabbath. You were breaking it. Therefore, I'm kicking you out of the land so that I can give the land the Sabbath that you stole from it. You never stopped. You never rested. Therefore, to exile you go. That's 2 Chronicles 36, 20-21, Ezekiel 20, 10-26, other places. And then when Israel returns to the land, some 70 years later, after the promised land had received its rests, so to speak, from God's hand, uh, they, they come back into the land, but they're still prone to the same kind of tendencies and temptations. So that even as they're rebuilding the temple and the wall, Nehemiah in Nehemiah 13, 15 to 18 has to say, guys, what are you doing working on the Sabbath? That's the same reason they were sent in the exile before. Don't you do it again. So they're still struggling with Sabbath breaking. Under threat of exile and judgment. And then it gets even more significant for the rise of the Pharisees. Because by the end of the Old Testament. And moving into the 400 years or so between the Testaments, what we see is with guys like Alexander the Great and others coming into Israel, there's this radical Hellenization happening. Greco-Roman culture pushing on, on Israel. And you know what? People in Israel are buckling left and right. Even priests are going down. Bowing to the idols of the culture around them. The same kind of stuff that sent Israel into exile in the first place. The Pharisees rise up during this period. The period between the Old and New Testament. Through Malachi and Matthew, so to speak. They rise up here almost as a countercultural movement saying, Wait a minute, guys. Wait a minute, Israel. We are Yahweh's. 
and they start calling Israel back to Yahweh and to his law. They are concerned with holiness. They are concerned with God bringing his kingdom back to his people and giving them the land in full. They're concerned with legitimate things. And by all accounts, some of us might look and think, man, these guys are like heroes. Because they weren't going to bend to the culture and the pressures false gods around them. In fact, they weren't even going to permit a whiff of disobedience to the law. And this is where it starts to go wrong. They created what has been called essentially a fence around the law. Here's what you could picture. If walking into the house is equivalent to breaking the law, committing sin. I'm, I'm engaging in, you know, law-breaking, walking into that house. Well, they say, listen, let's build a fence around that house so that, you know, we can't even get near to it. So let's identify not just the actions that are, you know, officially breaking the law, but any kind of action out here along the periphery that could be even close to breaking the law. I don't even want a whiff of that sort of thing in my life. So they create this kind of fence around the law. And in the case of the Sabbath, the whole issue turned on the definition of work. So if, if, if Sabbath is cessation or rest from work, then the Pharisees had to sit down and go, wait a minute, and they're scribes, and wait a minute, what constitutes work? I see the house, kind of, but how do we build a fence around that so we don't have any hint of that sort of disobedience anymore? So they come up with 39 39 different categories of activities <laughs> that constitute work that would break the Sabbath. You see the zeal, you see the passion, you see, you see a desire to, 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 to perhaps obey, honor God, but it is a zeal, like Paul would say in Romans 10, without knowledge, not according to knowledge, because Christ is the end of the law, and they miss it. They're so consumed with the law. Giving you history, hopefully it's not too boring. 39 different categories of activities that constituted work, and now, in verses 1 through 5, Jesus and his disciples are guilty of violating four of those categories. <laughs> We're in our text. Verse 1 On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. One commentator notes, the Pharisees would find in the plucking of the heads of grain a breach of the regulation which forbade reaping. Violation one. And in the rubbing of them in their hands, a breach of what prohibited threshing. Throwing away the husks probably represented Winnowing, while eating, showed that they had prepared food. Four distinct breaches of the Sabbath in one mouthful. How in the world is Jesus going to get out of this? 
Because immediately the Pharisees see it and they object. Verse 2, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus doesn't respond to their objection by defending his disciples' actions as lawful. He doesn't, he doesn't respond to their objection by slamming their abuse and the absurdity of all these, 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 these additions that they put to the Sabbath law. Here's what he does. Instead, he, one, reminds them of the Sabbath's true aim. He reminds them of the Sabbath's true aim. And two, he introduces them to the Sabbath's true author. So first, he reminds them of the Sabbath's true aim. By recalling a story from the Old Testament, Jesus brings them back to see what the Sabbath really should be all about. Verses 3 through 4, Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Do you, you following here? I'll, I'll, I'll refresh your memory on, on this one. I, I had to refresh my own memory on this story. It's found in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. What Jesus is referring to here. It's when David's on the run from Saul. Okay, David's on the run. He's a fugitive. He's running from Saul. And he and his men are hungry. And they come to the tabernacle. And they come to a priest at the tabernacle. And they say, man, we need food. And the priest says, all I've got is the bread of the presence, which uh, is essentially kept in the holy place of the tabernacle, and according to Leviticus 24.9, was only for the priests to eat. The law said the bread of the presence is only for the priests to eat, and here is David with his men saying, we're hungry! And David takes, eats, gives it to his men, And Jesus says, though that on the surface is an unlawful act, David gets it. So what is Jesus getting at here? He's getting at the true aim of the law in general. The true aim of the law. Every law of God has been put in place to serve the cause, you guys, of love and compassion. Every law of God put in place to serve the cause of love and compassion. Therefore, when David shows up and says, I'm hungry, and that bread, though it breaks kind of the surface of the law to give that bread to David and his men, at the same time, it fulfills the deeper aim of the law because it is an act of compassion and love. You with me? Now, with regard to the Sabbath, this can be seen most clearly perhaps in the question that Jesus asks down in verse 9. I'm going to kind of blend the two scenes here for a moment. The Pharisees had trouble not just with feeding hungry people on the Sabbath, you guys. They also had, had trouble with healing, hurting people. 
They said, hey, listen, we'll make an exception for emergencies. If someone's dying, fine, you can help them. But if they're not dying, it can wait until Monday. So what Jesus does here, essentially, although he just speaks, he has this way around it, it's amazing, uh, essentially is a breach of what the Pharisees would say. And, 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 and Jesus brings uh, this man with a withered hand out before them. He says, hey, come and stand here. And as he's standing there, verse 9, uh, he says to the Pharisees this, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? Or to do harm. To save life. Or to destroy it. He's getting at the point of the Sabbath here. The point of the law. Is the point of all this to do good or to destroy? Why did God establish the Sabbath, Pharisees? His point is crystal clear. As as Westerholm puts it, I love this. Doing good can never be wrong on the Sabbath. Why? Because that's the point of the Sabbath. is to, 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 to love men, to in compassion move towards and refresh and bless. That's why God establishes it in the first place. How can that be wrong? As Jesus would say in Mark's account of the story, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark 2.27 In other words... Pharisees, you're making man servants of the Sabbath. Well, God gave the Sabbath to serve man. Therefore, it's a natural extension to heal this brother's hand on the Sabbath because it serves him in love, compassion, and mercy. Or in Matthew, his account of this story in his gospel, Matthew 12, 7, he's, Jesus says this, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. His point there again, Pharisees, you're stuck on the letter of the law. You're stuck on sacrifices and Sabbaths, and you've missed the point of it all, which is mercy and love. When you go to kill a lamb, it's not about the lamb ultimately. It's about how that gets into your heart, how the mercy of God shown to you in that sacrifice gets into your heart and makes you a merciful person to others. You see? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy is the goal. That's why we all know the two great commandments. You know, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus essentially says this, love for God and love for neighbor. On those two things depend the entire law and the prophets. You want to sum it up? There it is. The law exists to serve the purpose of love. That's the true aim. Therefore, Pharisees, when I feed the hungry, when I heal the lame, crippled, broken on the Sabbath, I don't break the Sabbath. I fulfill its truest, deepest aim. That's the kind of God you have. I'm filled with rules and keeping, keeping you out and blessing. Moving towards holy, absolutely, but merciful all the same.
But just in case they want to question Jesus on this, he also declares himself to be the Sabbath's true author. (laughs) He makes it plain. Listen, if you're going to question my interpretation here, you think I'm wrong, let me tell you who I am. Verse 5, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And we need to hear that. I love how his authority, his sovereignty, his greatness is brought together with his benevolence, his grace, his mercy, his kindness in that. So often, man, authorities in our lives abuse us, right? Your boss wants to rest and make you work. He wants to make you work and rest. False gods, false gospels put you to work while they rest. Some ladies perhaps have husbands driving them hard, authority in their life, driving them hard. They don't ever get to rest. Well, Jesus has the authority over all. I am Lord. I designed the Sabbath. I know what its intentions was. I'm Yahweh. All authority and he desires to bless and give rest. He takes his authority and uses it for your good. He doesn't say, hey, you work so I can rest. He said, I'm working so that you'll be able to rest and we'll get there. I want you to rest with me. It's the Lord of the Sabbath. We, we have an amazing God. I, I don't know where you've been trying to find rest, brothers and sisters, lately. But only Jesus both desires to give it and has the full authority power to deliver on it. Sabbath rest fulfilled in him. He is the son or he is the son of man and he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you're worried about point two, it's literally just a sentence here for me. Verses six through eleven, the claim manifested the claim manifested because he knows the Pharisees. I mean, at around every turn, they're going to say, well, who are you to interpret the law? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, who are you to claim you're Lord of the Sabbath? You don't believe me? You're going to call my bluff on that? Let me not just make the claim. Verses 1 through 5. Let me manifest the claim. Verses 6 through 11. I'll show you what it means to be Lord of the Sabbath, to use my authority to repair and refresh and love and be merciful to humanity. Therefore, he says, <laughs> look at this uh, in, in, in Luke 6, on another Sabbath, right hand withered, stretch it out, hand restored. Just summarize the story for you. Another Sabbath, Right hand withered. Stretch it out, Jesus says. Hand restored. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. As we draw things to a close, there is both a wonder and a warning for us in this text. And I'll leave us with these two reflections. Um, starting with the warning. I, I mentioned earlier that we can sympathize with the Pharisees' concern for Sabbath breaking, but that we better learn from their deadly mistake. Well, I want to learn from their mistake here for a moment. In all their concern for the letter of the law, they missed the spirit of it. They missed the true intention of it. They missed the God behind it, you see. 
They actually kind of twisted the law to be this sort of ladder upon which they could kind of climb and then look down at anyone else who couldn't get as high as they did. Instead of it being this, this awesome thing of calling people back to holiness and all that, but mingled with the grace and the kindness of God and an understanding of who God is and what he's come to do, they just distorted it. It became this ladder instead of something that led them to love. Neighbor. And we got to know that we're prone to the very same sort of things. We too can kind of walk in the way of the Pharisee, you guys. I'll give you kind of a, a list here of what I think it could look like. When we, we, we walk in the way of, of the Pharisees, when we care more about laws than about love. When we're more passionate about keeping people out than inviting them in. When we get more excited about argument than agreement. I've been to seminary. That is seminary. Let's define orthodoxy. Let's make our fence. And let's fight everybody to the death who disagrees. I know Greek and Hebrew. You don't. And you miss it. You miss the point of the gospel as you argue about it. We walk in the way of the Pharisees when we are more aware of what's wrong with a person than what's right. You've been there. Christians, I mean, we we can be some of the most nauseating people. I'm sorry to say it. We can. We should be the most gracious, most affectionate, most heartbroken people. And yet, you want to know how it was like that? You know who I ran into when I was walking? So and so. You want to know what she was doing? She was drinking a glass of wine. Oh, you watch that show on TV? Oh, no, 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 no. I stopped watching TV a long time ago. You know? How was your devotion this morning? Oh, you didn't have a devotion? Oh, yeah, God came down and met with me. Then he took me up to the third heavens. That sort of thing. I joke, but it's for real. People leave church feeling like, man, I thought I'd find grace, and I just found law there. We've got to work on this. Believe me. Hopefully you've heard me preach long enough to know I'm not just saying that God is, there's a, there's a, he's holy and he's gracious. But man, he's gracious, you guys. We're walking in the way of the Pharisees when we start watching for people to make mistakes so that we can have the pleasure of correcting or accusing them. I just lifted this straight out of verse 7. I want to learn from these Pharisees. Watch what they do here. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see a wonderful miracle and restoration of human life. No. To see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Ah, you healed somebody. You love somebody. How dare you? It's crazy, right? You guys are thinking I'm crazy right now. I am a little crazy. But man, isn't that horrible? It's just like me. Ooh, that wasn't an orthodox statement. I better point it out. (laughs) Serious. As Paul would say in Ephesians 4.20, this is not the way we learned Christ. This is not the Lord of the Sabbath who fills bellies and heals hands. But he does even more. I'm going to end us or leave, leave us with the wonder. Because now...
When Jesus manifests his lordship over the Sabbath and the healing of this man's hand, we, his people, celebrate. But the Pharisees are furious. Verse 11, we read this. They were filled with fury. Not celebrating here. Yeah, go Jesus. No, no, no. Filled with fury and disgust with one another, what they might do to Jesus. Luke can barely tell a story without foreshadowing where the story is going. It is going towards the cross because these Pharisees are going to try to get rid of him. But all they're going to do is set Jesus up for really the ultimate manifestation of his claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Namely, he's going to die, he's going to rise. He's going to enter his rest, and he's going to give it to us. Pharisees will try to destroy him. They kill him on that cross, and then his body is laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. On what day? Do you remember? The Sabbath, Luke 23, 54. And I can almost imagine the Pharisees saying, finally, he will keep the Sabbath as we've defined it. He's dead. He can't work there in the grave. Oh, yes, he can. In fact, he saved his his greatest act of mercy, his greatest work of mercy of all for the very last Sabbath he would observe while on the earth. Because in the tomb, so to speak, in the grave, he's not just feeding a few hungry disciples. He's not just healing one man's withered hand with his body broken like bread. He's going to feed the world. And with his nail pierced hands, he's going to heal the world. Body and soul, not just in part, but in whole and not just one person. But all whom the Father would give to him. I mean, he's doing the greatest act of compassion ever on that last Sabbath as he lay in the grave. Because he would rise, right? And the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, man, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Did you hear that? He sat down. He said, my work of redemption is done. I'm sitting down, I'm resting, and then guess what, brothers and sisters? We enter into that rest by faith in Him. He's pleased the Father, and all the laws and all this stuff, His righteousness is enough. I'll leave you with this. Immediately preceding Matthew's recording of, of the two Sabbath day stories from our text, because he records them in Matthew 12. But immediately preceding his recording of those stories, he, he, he uh, records Jesus crying out to anyone who would hear this. I want you to hear it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, that inside stuff that sleep can't get to. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. And Matthew puts that story there because he's saying, man, the Pharisees, they get rest wrong. In all their concern for rest, they just heap work upon work. And burden upon burden, the yoke is heavy. And you feel that, right? Religion without relationship. Pursuing godliness, but without the power of God. Doing all the duty, but with none of the delight. Christianity without the Christ. Law without grace. I could keep going, I won't. It's a burden. I mean, I talked to somebody last week and, and he was saying, man, Christianity just feels like a burden. Rules, rituals. I can't keep them all. When it starts to feel like that, we've missed it. We've given way to the Pharisees. And if I ever make Christianity feel like that, I've missed it. Call me out on it. Because Jesus would call us out on it. He would say, listen, enough is enough. My yoke is easy. Come to me. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you broken? Those who follow my observance of the Sabbath will find themselves filled, verses 1 through 5, healed, repaired, restored, verses 6 through 11. I am the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and in me you will find the rest you so desperately need for body and soul. Let's pray. God, we come to you. We just throw ourselves down. I love the fact that Christianity begins with blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're not climbing our way up. But the way up is down. If we can fall down and say, I can't, then it all begins. God, we want to rest in what you have done. We're so thankful you're seated on the throne, Jesus, that your work of redemption is finished. You are our creator and our redeemer in full, and we trust you. Oh, we might spend ourselves in sleepless nights. We might spend ourselves for the kingdom, like men like Paul and others. Our body might be wasting away, but man, it's creating for us a weight of glory beyond compare. We will rest with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.